Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Dr. Simon, and I do this show uh, less regularly than I think I should, uh, and vary the times because uh, I do it when it's convenient for me. But it's okay because it gets archived. I announce the show in advance to uh, friends and and a group, uh, ISEPP, that I belong to, and people can call in. But today I want to ruminate on something that came out of an earlier program with the same title, uh, Psychotherapy and Mental Health. Um, I'm in the midst of an interesting uh, change in my life now. Uh, I am no longer working. The last seven years or so, I worked in a nursing home, a number of nursing homes. Uh, I worked two days a week, and then I found it too burdensome, so I worked one day a week, and it was important for me to be a psychologist. Um, And in many ways, the most education I had as a psychologist was working with the people who are uh, forced to be in these nursing homes. I have never met one, ever, who said, I'm glad to be here. Uh, All they pray is for to either get out or to die. Many do adjust until it becomes too unbearable for them. Um, And I was put into into these nursing homes uh, through a company that I worked initially with, and then they made me an employee, um, which was okay. They took a chunk of what I made, uh, and I was perfectly happy because then they did all of the billing according to the endless and arcane uh, requirements of Medicare, and all of my patients were Medicare. And what has been happening uh, in my last place is that more and more Humana patients were coming on, and I couldn't see Humana patients, um, and my company only billed for Humana, for for Medicare. Uh, Well, two things happened. One, the number of my patients dropped precipitously, uh, and I was going and seeing only two people, which I was willing to do until (laughs) I passed or they passed. Um, The second thing that happened is that Uh, my company sold to a larger company and that and then uh, I refused to go through the song and dance of becoming a member of that company that were going to change my work order my days my habits uh, how I reported what I diagnosed I would suddenly be scrutinized for what I was doing Um, and, and I won't go into that so I have left, and at this point, um, I don't think I'm going to look for more work. Uh, I stopped doing uh, psychotherapy at private practice some years ago when I could no longer bear to come home and go to my office at night when more and more of the patients uh, that were willing to see me were willing to come. And so uh, I'm still a psychologist because I do this show, and I love doing this show, and also because I am now starting to write a new book. And today I was informed by a publisher 
that uh, they're pleased to tell me that when the book is finished or if the manuscript is uh, is done or when it's done, uh, send it to them and they'll make a final decision about publishing it. And the whole thing seems very positive. But it's in the writing and doing these shows and in my experience as a psychologist now for over 50 years that I have constantly struggled with the meaning and the definition of my work. And I know from endless discussions with others who are willing to have the discussion that others are in the same uh, predicament that I find myself. Of course, a lot of this thought, and anybody who listens to my show will recognize that part of what turned my head was one day fully understanding the implications of Thomas Zass and his theory of the myth of mental illness. Not the theory, it's an observation. That if, in fact, the individuals who display uh, behaviors, patterns of emotional experience, uh, types of thinking uh, that are to be defined as mental illness, then there must be a medical cause for these problems or else uh, it's something other than mental illness. And indeed, the moment you accept that there is a medical reason, some biochemical upset, some problem in the brain of an individual or somewhere in the body that is in any way fully or more, mostly fully responsible for these behaviors that are troubled and troubling, sometimes to the individual, uh, who is behaving and thinking and feeling what they are feeling, or to the society, or their families, or somebody, uh, then you have a medical illness. There can't be a mental illness, behavior, patterns of thinking, emotional experiences can't of themselves represent an illness or symptoms of an illness that's mental. If they're symptoms, they are of a medical nature. Otherwise, they are, as I now come to understand it, patterns of adaptive behavior. A person giving the totality of their existence, the genetics that they were born with, the family they were born into, the hundreds and hundreds of variables that define the difference in families, against the hundreds and hundreds of ways in which their genes may or may not be different from the genes of other people. Um, birth order, I mean, you go down, there's all these ways in which the biology and the social experience and the individual uh, is cooked together in such a complexity that ultimately we do not know why one individual behaves differently, whether we like it or not, than another. But it makes, feels right to say that these are not illnesses, but adaptations. Adaptations that they or we or somebody or everyone says are problematic. They're not right. And therefore, the judgments that we make in the guise of medical problems are moral. They're moral judgments. And this leaves us with a very serious problem. And for anybody who listens to my show 
and, and the group I belong to where I try to raise this discussion, if they're not medical problems, if they're not, then we're not diagnosing anything. We're just calling somebody a bad name. Then they're not patients. And what we're doing is not therapy. And hence, you see me write psychotherapy with quotes around the therapy. Metaphorical illnesses need metaphorical therapy for metaphorical patients. But dumping the whole thing is very difficult because in 1946, at the Boulder Conference, psychologists were allowed to see patients under the supervision of a psychiatrist because there were just too many men coming home from war, unable to come out of service after having fought, killed, and watched mass murder. Because war now, and has been since the Civil War, is basically what somebody called industrial mass slaughter. There's nothing seemingly honorable about it. It's mass killing and watching the agony of what human beings can do to each other. So when, when, when these individuals came home, there were too few psychiatrists to treat them uh, because they had a, a war neurosis. Now, there's an interesting side here. In World War I, they were not called war neurosis. It was called shell shock. And prior to World War I, and go back in history, an individual who emotionally found himself shaking, unable to eat, sleep, unable to focus, unable to continue fighting, was called a coward. There, a clear moral definition. And the question of what to do with a coward was either get him back into battle or hang him or shoot him. Because they were now traitorous to the good cause of the war. But once the doctors got their hands on this, and there's some, some, some benefit to this, I sense, better than shooting a man or hanging a man for cowardice, because he can no longer continue enduring combat with the killing and watching himself in danger, constantly experiencing his own demise and watching the demise in horrendous, violent ways of his fellow soldiers and the civilians that are called collateral damage, uh, uh, which, of which there are millions in, in modern warfare. So we psychologists had a conference, what will we go along with? And I won't get into the big discussion of this, but what we decided, and it wasn't me, I wasn't there, I wasn't born yet, actually I was six years old, so I couldn't have been part of it, was that we would be little doctors of sick minds, and as the years went by, we became um, um, uh, the, the, the substitutes or those finally who got uh, full rights to practice without medical supervision, without a psychiatric supervisor, and then got in, in the devil's bargain we made the right to sign insurance forms using the same diagnoses that were now proliferating making sure that every man, woman, and child alive had at least two, three, or four diagnoses uh, into which they could be placed as mentally ill and defective. And I did my whole career this way. 
I had no choice. Most of the time, I had no choice because I didn't want a choice. I fully accepted the idea that the people I was working with were mentally ill. They had a distortion, a disorder of some type. Early on, the major theoretical explanation, non-medical explanation, was that these were problems that arose in childhood. And it's interesting that I do believe that many of the problems people have in sorting out their lives and the adaptations they make to life come from the manner in which they were raised. And my book now deals with, and I've now written several books about this, that most of our adaptations are to authoritarian and totalitarian um, political relationships. When we have conflict with ourselves or others, we're taught to make a judgment about who is superior and who is inferior in a variety of ways. If the church defines you as inferior, you are a heretic. And one of the great uh, uh, tragedies and, and mass delusions, if you will, uh, of uh, uh, the ages only 100 years ago, hopefully 100 years ago, were the thousands of people, most of them women, who were judged to be witches, possessed by demons, and were tortured. And uh, ultimately, if they confessed their sins, uh, they could be strangled rather than burnt at the stake. Okay. We have now replaced that idea with the moral judgments posing as medical judgments, that there's a, a disease here of the mind, which is impossible. It's logically and factually impossible. So, as time went on, and I became more and more aware of my problems, both as a teacher of psychology, where psychology was defined as the scientific study of human behavior, of, of behavior, because it was not just human, but animal behavior. Uh, and I won't get into that at this point. In my book, that will be a separate chapter. But they fed together my work as a therapist and my work as a teacher. After reading the Zas, I found myself constantly struggling with what do I tell my patients? How do I present to them the notion that I know that when I fill out an insurance form, I am lying. I'm lying. I don't believe that they're mentally ill. With more, with more intact and educated patients, I was able to do this. And then we would both consider, are we colluding with one another in the lie? Morally, I couldn't get around this. But I love my career. I love my work. And I loved the people I work with, who, when I followed the dictates of what I now call psychotherapy, free from the idea of diagnosis, was a wonderful democratic process. You don't judge a patient. You ask questions that allow the individual who is bound up in a set of narratives that define him or herself as tainted, as defective, to re-examine the nature of those, the truth of the facts and the moral judgments being made, to learn the difference 
between understanding oneself through a description of feelings and thoughts and behavior and judging yourselves and pretending that calling yourself a bad name explains anything about yourself. Most of the therapists I know do that. And good things happen from it. But now it comes, I come to the real problem of writing a chapter on the nature of mental health. Because if mental illnesses are merely judgments about behavior that is unacceptable to someone, that is seen as defective and deficient to someone, then moral then mental health must be something that is morally positive because there is no way to define mental health and accept there's such a thing as a mentally healthy person any more than there is a mentally ill person. Now, as I struggle, I can understand and create criteria for things that I believe will cause less pain in a person's life, like helping them stop judging themselves and more describe themselves. But this has nothing to do with health. The moment we look to define a mentally health individual within the rhetoric, within the, 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 the language we use about mental illness, we now have to talk about what is mentally healthy. Who can do that? Well, I'll give you an answer to that. There are people, and I've been tempted to do the same, who write self-help books. How to live a happy life. How to have a fantastically successful sex life. How to live a long and prosperous life. Um, considering that is a better sex life a moral issue? Is making more money, is being happy a, a moral issue? I don't know. I don't think so. So that I have a conundrum. And hopefully anybody who hears this and wants to get into contact with me, what I think I'm going to do is after the holidays, because I will be going up to the cold and it's snowing now in New York, because that's the only way I'm going to spend some productive time with my children and my beautiful grandchildren, um, uh, I'm going to set up a show, and anybody who wants to call in and talk about this issue with me, I would love it. Uh, I live here in an isolated life in, in uh, Florida. I have friends down here. But the only way I can get a man to talk about anything with passion is if it's about sports. And since I can be passionate about golf, we exchange coded love letters, coded friendship. Cannot say I like you. I cannot say I care about you as a friend. This can cause a total meltdown. Are you trying to tell me that you're gay, that I'm gay, that I'm not man enough? So I'm limited at this point to talk about golf. I used to talk about tennis with great passion. Now it's just golf. Uh, I don't play cards. And so many of the retired men here 
have a day that's filled with either some sport activity and or endless card games. The women, endless games of cards, mahjong, canasta. Um, but women have a much less difficult time uh, as the superior sex. And I don't say that without really meaning it. Um, at this point, 65% of all the women, uh, who, oh, the, all college graduates are now women. If I list my favorite American composers, they're all women. If I talk about my favorite writers like uh, Kate Atkinson, it's a woman. Um, what we have over them is the uh, willingness to kill um, and, and, and uh, but we're, we're really not uh, in many ways the equal of a woman. Um, Freud talked about women having penis envy and I'm convinced that most of us as men have uh, womb envy, that the capacity to bring a life into this world leaves us with our jaw dropping. But anyway, let me get back to mental health. Uh, these books that are written in great profusion, how to have a great sex life, how to have better love in your life, don't ask the underlying moral question. And certainly don't answer my moral, uh, uh, my, my intellectual problem of defining for a patient that I'm working with under certain circumstances, what the hell would represent other than the reduction of their so-called symptoms, health. The, the default explanation in medicine, my doctor, if he doesn't find something grossly wrong with me, and I just had my blood work done and he gave me my physical. Uh, I go actually three times a year. He wants me to go four, but I refuse. Uh, and because of all the medications I take for blood pressure and other reasons, he wants to make sure that the medicines aren't going to kill me. So far they haven't. But I know I am no longer the picture of health. When after 15 holes of golf, all I want to do is lay down on the grass and take a long nap. Uh, that is not the health I felt when I was 25 or 30, and I could play three sets of tennis and feel uh, really uh, unhappy that I couldn't play a fourth. Um, the, the deterioration with age, without illness, without dis known disease, is slow. But what represents health? Okay? The de facto definition is, I can't find anything grossly wrong with you. But how do you define it in positive terms? Well, physically, I look at an athlete of 20 or 22, brimming with vitality, brimming with strength, uh, brimming with vigor and, and joy, because joy, I think, is a very big part of being healthy, uh, uh, physically as well as psychologically. Uh, but, but, but there is, to me, health. What is the same thing mentally? And I really don't have an answer. But I want to talk about this from the point of two diagnoses. One relates to the patients I was asked to see who uh, were in the, in the last stages of their life, even if not grossly ill and in, in, in hospice, uh, because uh, once a patient... Everybody accepts, family, etc., that the patient is so ill 
that they will no longer be treated medically and they're put on hospice. They're no longer treated for whatever ailments, physical ailments they have. If they agree to hospice, they're put on higher doses of painkiller and they're left, they're cared for by specialists, uh, uh, some of whom I've met and I believe have certainly as much more courage than I have to have a whole practice of working with actually uh, people dying within the next week or the next uh, hours. Um, and they're cared for that way. But most of the patients I work with are slowly dying and slowly deteriorating. And let me give you a, a, a case. An individual I worked with for five years, and w when I wake up in the middle of the night that I can no longer see this individual because of the, what I talked about earlier, that I can't, uh, I am no longer uh, licensed to go into. I have my psychology license in Florida, but I'm no longer licensed by the facility because I do not uh, uh, work for the company that now has the contract to provide psychological services and psychiatric services to this particular facility. When I first started to work, work with him, he was there because his family can no longer handle the, his needs due to Parkinson's. But he had adjusted in many ways, and we talked about the guilts he had concerning relationships and some of the things that he had done that I don't have to go into. And it was helpful to him in a more traditional psychological way. I would ask questions and he would examine the assumption that so many individuals examine, was I really such a bad person for what I did? Because as I will talk about in my book and I talk about a lot of our guilt uh, is driven by uh, infantile a pre-operational thinking. We blame ourselves for things that we, we, we really could never have really, we couldn't really have ruined our parents' marriage simply because we were born, that, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and he worked, talked about his marriage and the guilt he had about some of the things he did in the marriage. Although on whole, he was a good husband and importantly, a good father. And now one of the pains in his life is that he couldn't be the grandfather uh, and at the point at which I left him, he now uh, suffered from the fact that he could not see, he was unable to see for medical reasons, the great-grandchild, uh, the second great-grandchild born to him, his, his granddaughter. Uh, that's something. Have, having six grandchildren, uh, it's something. It's something to me that, that is awe-inspiring. As the years progressed, he adjusted he was very, had a good sense of humor. He was liked by his caretakers. Uh, his physical health really wasn't terrible. And every Tuesday night, a group of loyal friends would bring cards in a card table, and he would play card games that he loved. So that even though he was here, he had daily visits from his son, from his wife, and friends. He had a life, as he put it later on, then I was still a person. I had a life. Now I'm a thing, and I have only an existence that I don't want. At the point at which I left him, he could not turn over. He had a catheter because he could not go to the bathroom, and so he was on endless rounds of antibiotics, 
which then induced endless rounds of C. diff and watery diarrhea. The people who tended him were at their wits' end, changing a diaper 15, 18 times a day, or choosing to leave him in the diaper. Now, here was the question I asked. I still brought him some comfort. And that is what I defined at this point as meaningful therapy. I have a long list of jokes that I've collected over the years. And on some days, I still remember some. And when I would remember a joke, I would write it down and I would tell him the joke. And he would smile. It brought him comfort. And we talked about what we could talk about, even though he was losing the capacity to speak clearly. So I did most of the talking. I cared for this man. I love this man, as it happens, and most therapists. In fact, Eric Fromm, in his book, The Art of Love, or is it love? No, The Art of Love, talks about the relationship of professional love that can develop between two human beings, one called a therapist and one called a patient, that then obviates and changes the nature of the relationship to something that includes trust, dignity, and knowing that you're cared for. Okay. The feeling that you're understood, I'll put it in my terms, when someone I feel understands me and cares for me, and I use the word love to be defined as when I or they care more for my needs or I care more for their needs than their own or my own. Okay? I know without question I would lie down and die for any of my children and now my grandchildren whose futures I worry about in, in this new climate of constant war and, and climate change. Uh, where we would pretend and stick our heads up our ass as a society and do nothing about it. But I would die for them. And I know it's because how much I love them. Okay? When you feel that love, life changes from hopeless to something else. But therapy? What does that mean in this condition? Okay? If I could help him. I mean, one day he said to me, can you help me die? And I actually thought about something that might, but I can't do that. I can't tell him that. He has pictures on his wall of all his family, and he looks at them for longly, longingly and lovingly. I was going to suggest take the pictures down, because I think if the pictures came down, he would go much faster. Right? He said to me one day, can you change my room? Three people have died in the last six months in the room across the hall. Can you get me into that room? What represents cure of an illness? What represents health in this case? I like somebody to tell me because I can't define it. Okay. 20 minutes to a half hour of comfort a week, it's important to him. I think even more to me. But what is health to be defined as? Okay. Before I go off the air, one more diagnosis that has become uh, uh, a real problem for me, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Over the years, particularly during and after the Vietnam War, 
and now this endless war that we're in, I saw veterans, some from World War II and most from Vietnam. I also saw a goodly, no, I shouldn't say goodly, a bigly, bigly, that's, a, that's the new word today, a bigly number of cops who had killed somebody in the line of duty had the killing been investigated and were found that it was justifiable homicide in the act of law enforcement. They had indeed, in many of these cases, protected their own lives. All of these people were profoundly changed. Why? Because when we see another human being as a human being, and don't use the defenses of, and these are, I believe, defenses, dehumanization and demonization, which allow us to kill another human being and justify it. When we don't feel we have killed in the name of God in a holy war, when we see the victim, however we justify the killing, it is not fully justified, and we feel different about ourselves and what we have done. When the soldiers that came out, I'll talk about one, many of them had the same thing. I had a student, and at that time, I openly talked about the war and the politics of the war. I believed that we were going to war for reasons that had nothing at all to do with saving the South from godless communism. It had to do with empire, it had to do with power, it had to do with a variety of other things that somehow never gets openly and honestly stated as to why we went to war. We now know that the war was a lie, but the soldiers who came back, right? Uh, I had one student who said to me, uh, I think you're a communist. Lovely young man. You're a communist. You're against the war. He had gung-ho joined the Marines. And a year later, I looked up, and there he was standing in front of me in his uniform with one leg missing. And he said to me, you're right. And I said, I don't want to be right. You did what you thought was right, and you did it. Take heart in that. He said, no. We knew from the moment we were there we were being lied to. We were told that these were people who were godless communists, and all I saw were human beings. And we killed them. We killed them because they didn't see us as human beings, and they wanted to kill us. But they were just human, and we were being lied to. We were told we were winning the war, and all, every one of us knew we were losing the damn thing and would never win this war. What the hell were we fighting for? But the person that I spent the most amount, I never saw him again, and, and, and I didn't know what to say. Um, what can you say? Is he mentally ill? Is he? Or did he see some existential truth, just as my patient lying in a bed who feels the existential truth of no longer having a meaningful, creative, and joyful life, any life at all. This is a young man I saw for almost two years who came in. He was daily uh, uh, taking drugs so he could be diagnosed as having a substance use disorder. Uh, he was depressed. He was angry. He was anxious. And slowly, the experience of the war 
began to be discussed, not in judgment, but in terms of description. What actually happened? He, too, was profoundly disillusioned by the idea that he was sent there for some kind of holy mission to protect uh, uh, God or, or to act to, to save uh, Catholics. Uh, and so much of that war was run up to and justified by Cardinal Spellman of New York, who openly and angrily called for the protection of Catholics from the godless uh, uh, enemy of communism. He said, the event, the last event came. He says, when we got back from our mission, and he was a helicopter gunship pilot, he said, we would fly over a village suspected of having Viet Cong, the name of the enemy, uh, 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 the army uh, of North Korea and in South Korea. He said, you never saw the Viet Cong. You saw living beings. And we would fire down on them with these rapid fire machine guns. And if you looked after you fired as if a wall of steel had come down and mashed everything to a, as he put it, a red pulp lying on the ground. We would then come back. We couldn't talk about it. We couldn't look at each other. He later said, we knew we were doing mass murder. And most of those people weren't our enemy. They were the victims of their soldiers and now of us. We would get stoned. He says, one day I had a mission and I got up and I was too stoned to fly. And my buddy, as we would often do, took my place. His, his ship was shot out of the air and he died. And I can't live with myself. I can't. He used to talk about suicide. He never did it. Drugs were his escape. And I, of course, was supposed to get him off the pot and the booze that he was taking so he could get on our drugs would, would help him no more in coming to some kind of a guiltless resolution. Finally, he said, I need to be forgiven. And I was tempted to forgive him. But who am I to forgive him? I talked about it in terms of his doing his duty. But there was no way I could get him to forgive himself nor was there anything in my experience as a psychotherapist that says it's right to forgive somebody for what they've done. Okay. He no longer believed in God. He was never much of a religious individual. And after two years, he kind of accepted that maybe he had a right to live in spite of what happened. But when we finally stopped working, what would I call now his mental health? That he didn't kill himself? That he lived with this guilt and this terrible feeling of responsibility every moment of every day? Right? I don't know how you define this, mental health. It's meaningless, especially as it relates to doing psychotherapy with a person that you've diagnosed as having a mental illness. Oh, did I skip that about the mental... I had to define... When all these patients were sent to me because they wanted to die, I had to define it as major depressive disorder. They were depressed with an illness, a mental illness, for wanting... To, not for failing to be able to come to grips with their 
metaphysical with their their uh, uh, condition, their their human condition. So, I'm going to write a chapter on mental illness, and I'm going to talk about on mental health, and I'm going to suggest that living a democratic life and a joyful life and a life with creativity is the good life because I find it to be the good life. Okay? And I suggest that a moral life is a good life. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't try to kill people. Don't hurt people. Don't dehumanize people. But it's not going to be a how-to book. I don't know how you reach those things. Right? I don't understand it. I don't know what mental health actually means in the context of what my profession would suggest is the opposite of a mental illness. Wow. I think I've done over, well, I put it on for 45 minutes. It's almost 41 minutes. Enough. Enough. I'm going to set something up for the holidays. I will send out a message to those who I know follow me or might follow me. And I want to open this up for a discussion. What I'm left with is that our whole field and those of us who love our work and know we help individuals to live different, if not better lives, has to be recontextualized, redefined. I don't struggle with this anymore except on a conceptual level because I will never diagnose another human being for as long as I might have to live. Uh, one of the groups that I knew from ICSPP, the days in the early 2000s, uh, were the psychiatric survivors. And somebody referred a young man to me just recently, and I did FaceTime therapy with him. I never diagnosed him. I charged a reasonable fee. Uh, and again found that uh, I was letting him down because I wasn't, as he put it, empowering him. Uh, and I didn't want to work at night. I just don't want to work at night. And he had a good full-time job. So I looked for someone who might see him. But here in Florida, I don't know anybody who would see him and even discuss the diagnosis he should get although I think I helped him understand the nature of the diagnosis he would be given and that if he was a good patient in quotes, he would argue and debate the issue of why he was being called this other than for the fact that he wanted reimbursement for the session and the therapist wanted to earn a living. Not that those are wrong, not that those are bad things, but what does that imply about the moral activity involved in that. So, I'm going to hang up now. I'm going to close this and turn this. Hopefully, in a half hour, I'll come back, and it is an archive. Uh, I wish everybody a wonderful, a wonderful uh, time. Oh, by the way, one of the people who I've been talking with on the air that I have now met for the first time is a psychiatrist named Lee Holman, Coleman. And Lee does a, a piece on, did I say this before? Okay, it doesn't matter. He has a piece on YouTube called Psychiatry and Society. It is interesting. It's provocative. It, by itself, can lead to a good discussion. Um, and maybe I will have Lee on with me again as a co-host. 
and anybody else who wants to join in for a discussion on this, because I know he is eager to do this. Uh, this topic is as important to him as it is to me. So good night. Have a wonderful holiday. Eat a lot of your best favorite food. Drink heartily. Uh, the evidence is now in that alcohol is good for you, as long as you don't do bad things with it. Good night and goodbye. <laughs>